Well, as all of you, or most of you probably well know, we've been in a sermon series on Ezekiel. Now, a few things before we carry on this morning, and that is that that, uh, uh, Burley Vaughn, after looking at the text for this morning and kind of the content for the sermon, came to me and said, are you sure you want to keep this slide up? Because it doesn't seem like an Ezekiel sermon, and fair enough. Strictly speaking, it's not. Uh, It is a bit of what I'm going to call an an excursus or a sort of side road that we're going to take that's going to lead us back around to the main road eventually. Uh, And so give me one or two Sundays. Because as many of you know, when it comes to things like the traditional church calendar and Pentecost, I don't believe that's a law. I don't believe you have to celebrate it if you don't want to. Uh, Plenty of Christians of good faith don't. And so I say that's absolutely fine. There's no biblical mandate for it. It is for me as a pastor, um, and, and particularly as a preacher, a good excuse that I like to use from time to time. What I mean by that is that I get to say, yes, we believe in, in, the, in the tradition of Lectio Continua, that is preaching through a book, verse by verse, and moving through it to see all that God would have us say. And in the midst of that, what I like to sometimes do is use the traditional church calendar as an excuse just to circle around. And then come back to where we were. And so we have been in Ezekiel chapter 13, which talks about false prophets who are following after and speaking, uh, speaking through, speaking because of a sp- their own spirit in their own hearts. And so it being Pentecost, I wanted to, to stop for a moment and take probably this, uh, take this Sunday and probably next Sunday as well to talk to you about the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit has been mentioned in the book of Ezekiel, and I want to spend just two Sundays today and then next Sunday, what's traditionally known as Trinity Sunday, uh, to talk to you about the Holy Spirit and His work in our midst as new covenant people and what it is He does, all right? So I'm going to start then with Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. These are the disciples and the, the apostles of Jesus and Uh, those who were also with them in their company. Suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. It filled the entire house where they were sitting. Divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And so we, we continue to confess as we read it together, brothers and sisters, that this is the word of the Lord. And so we say, thanks be to God. And so in this moment in Acts chapter 2, the disciples are filled with the Holy Spirit, filled with the Holy Spirit. And they begin to speak in tongues. And just so you know how that's been handled through church history, basically two options as to what speaking in tongues is. Speaking other known languages, right? So, so. Chinese, Spanish, French, German, what you and I would, those would be languages you and I would recognize. Uh, Speaking other languages that you didn't previously know, or the second way that that is interpreted is a particular gift of speaking what we might call an angelic language or a heavenly language that's not translatable, right? And so regardless of how you might, um, 
how you might understand that and how you might kind of qualify different parts of the New Testament and what they're talking about, it does seem to me to be fairly obvious that at least right here in Acts chapter 2, what we are talking about is known languages because people gather and hear them speaking in their own language. And, you've, and, and Luke, uh, the author of the book of Acts, is careful to list kind of different ethnic groups and that they're, they're saying to each other, wait, we're, all of us are hearing them in our own language. So the reason why I'm bringing all that up is because I'm using this Sunday as an excuse to talk about the Holy Spirit. And where I want to start is that some would say that to be filled with the Holy Spirit means that you must speak in tongues, whatever that means. That speaking in tongues is the outward verification of an inward reality, such that the gift of tongues becomes the requisite for uh, the requisite verification for your salvation, okay? Such that, again, so, so this idea that the gift of tongues is the verification for salvation. It's to be expected or even required uh, for all believers. So you'll find this in some streams of the charismatic movement, particularly in, in Pentecostal churches um, and uh, oneness Pentecostal churches in our own city. So I want to begin by exploring that idea just a bit. I submit this to you, that if all that we had was the second chapter of Acts, and then Luke stopped and didn't write anything else, there might be a case for that, for, for expecting this all the time. But, truth be told, the book of Acts does not end with chapter 2. So what happens as people are filled with the Holy Spirit? That's the question I'm going to put before you. That's our starting place this morning. When people are filled with the Holy Spirit, what happens next? Why don't we investigate that together? At the start of the book of Acts, Jesus tells them that uh, Jesus tells his disciples that they are going to be his witnesses. He says, "You'll receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. You'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and, Judea, and all Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth." Right now, that text is genuinely its own sermon, but suffice it to say that all we know so far is that to uh, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and then what? You'll be witnesses, right? That's all we know so far, right? I mean, you can see that in the text. Holy Spirit comes, you'll be my witnesses. That's all the information we have so far. Then we get to chapter 2, uh, particularly verse 4, which was just read a moment ago. They were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Okay, so now we have this new element introduced. Filled with the Spirit and speaking in tongues. At that time, Peter quotes from the prophet Joel, right? If you'll go to the next text, please. In quoting the prophet Joel, this is what Peter says. The last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. There it is. And then what's ha what happens? Your son and your daughters shall prophesy. Young men shall see visions. Old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit. So in other words, not just the richest among you or the most influential among you, but rich, poor, young, old, male, female, this, they, will, uh, they will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. What's interesting is no mention of any gift of tongues. Okay? So we have, they will prophesy, they'll see visions, they'll dream dreams, and that it's, it's fulfilled in that moment. Okay, so nothing about tongues or other languages. Let's go next uh, in chapter 4, verses 8 through 12, where Peter is preaching the gospel and he's filled with the Holy Spirit. There it is. What happens next? He says to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we're being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, 
by what means uh, this man has been healed. Let it be known to all of you, to all the people of Israel, that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. So here's Peter, amen. Here's Peter speaking to Jews. They're speaking the same language. He's filled with the Holy Spirit. And what happens? He starts preaching the gospel. Okay. All right. So that's perhaps another element we can add in. He starts preaching the gospel. Uh, Next, Acts 4.31. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit. What happens next? They continued to speak the word of God with boldness. No mention of tongues. No mention of languages, but speaking the word of God with boldness. Okay, very interesting. Acts chapter 8 is the next time we read about people who are filled with the Holy Spirit, where interestingly enough, they laid their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. That's all we're given. We're not really told what happened next. All we know is that Simon Magus, Simon the magician, sees it and says, and, and, and tries to pay for it, tries to pay for this Holy Spirit. Okay, so we're not entirely sure what happened there. We're not told what happened. Uh, we are told that uh, in the previous verse that, uh, that, that miraculous things were happening in the midst of this. But Simon was so impressed with it that he wanted to buy the Holy Spirit for which he gets condemned. In chapter 9, Saul, also known as Paul, regains his sight when Ananias comes to visit him. Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road... By which you came has sent me to you so that you may regain your sight. And there it is. Be filled with the Holy Spirit. And sudden and immediately something like scales fell from his eyes. He regained his sight. He rose, was baptized, taking food. He was strengthened for some days. He was with the disciples at Damascus and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues saying he is the son of God. No mention of tongues again, but we do have mention of a proclamation. Interestingly enough. He preaches, he is the Son of God. Acts chapter 10, a group of Gentiles, God-fearing Gentiles, receive the Holy Spirit. And here we have, they're speaking in tongues and extolling God right at the end there. And and there's a particular intensity that, that the Holy Spirit is poured out even on the Gentiles. And then Acts 10, 44 through 46, when Gentiles receive the Holy Spirit, again, we're told that they begin speaking in tongues. Oh, sorry. Uh, the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles, for they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. Sorry, I must have confused my text there. In both chapter 9 and chapter 10, we have this, um, sorry, make sure that, no, no, sorry, chapter 10 and chapter 19. Uh, you have Gentiles receiving the Holy Spirit and then speaking in tongues, okay, in these last, last two passages. Now, here's my point. If we can, we can jump ahead, please, to the next part. I'm not sure how well you can see that. But it's basi- it basically outlines all the texts we just look at and, and, and gives you what happens when people speak in tongues. As you can see, or excuse me, when they receive the Holy Spirit. As you can see, sometimes they speak in tongues, sometimes they don't. What is really consistent, though, is that regardless of how they speak, they are speaking. Do you see that in the, in the way that I've laid it out there? So some, we're extolling God, praising God, speaking in tongues, and then some, we're just preaching He is the Son of God, right? What you have in every instance 
is believers who are filled with the Holy Spirit. And what happens? Go to the next slide. They start talking about Jesus. That is what Holy Spirit-filled people do. So if your question is, what is the mark of Spirit-filled people? The answer is, they talk about Jesus. They talk about Jesus a lot, and in many and various and different ways to many and various and different people. Spirit-filled people talk about Jesus. And so a Holy Spirit-filled church is a church full of people who talk about Jesus, okay? To everyone they can find, people in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria, to the ends of the earth. And furthermore, Spirit-filled people talk about Jesus to each other. It's what we were just doing a moment ago when we were singing, right? You're, you're in a sense, you're, you're preaching to one another, right? Because once we start living in community together, we realize something. As a people, when we start rubbing shoulders with each other, we realize that it's really easy to forget what Jesus has taught us. And it's really easy for my brother and my sister to forget what Jesus has taught them. So Jesus puts us in a a local body of believers, not simply to maintain once weekly attendance. Or even not just so we can come to a place where we can sing together and listen together, but so that we can keep telling each other and the wider unbelieving world about Jesus. Because that is what Holy Spirit-filled people do. Now I want to take that then, this idea that, okay, that's what we've been given then, to be, to be filled with the Holy Spirit, is to talk about Jesus. And I want to add to that kind of, well, what is it then that the Spirit does among us to ensure that we keep on talking about Jesus? For that, I'm going to go to the Gospel of John, chapter 14. Which John, kind of beginning in 14 to, uh, to the end of, I think, about chapter 17, Jesus gives this, what some have called a farewell discourse, sort of his, his last words to his disciples before he goes to the cross. And there's a lot packed in there. And if you've got a Bible with, with red letters, then as soon as you get to John 14, it's just, you know, flip the page, it's all red. Flip the page, it's all red. It just keeps going and going and going and talking about all these things that he wants to make sure that they know And so Jesus says to them at one point, these things I have spoken unto you. Oh, somehow I went to King James. Fascinating. Uh, Being yet present with you. But the Comforter, who is the Holy Ghost or Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he shall teach you all things, right? And bring all things to your remembrance, whatsoever I've said unto you. So he will teach you all things. All things. That's what Jesus promises. That this Spirit's coming. And remember the context. He's speaking to His disciples. The Holy Spirit is coming in order to teach them all things. Why? Because suffice it to say, without having to to do the exploring and showing you every individual part where this happens, throughout the Gospels, the disciples are constantly confused, right? About precisely what is Jesus doing and what is his goal and what is his objective and, and, and what is exactly is the nature of his ministry and, and is, is he going to take out the Romans and finally give them the sort of political liberation they've been longing for? The, the disciples are very confused frequently throughout the gospel accounts. And so Jesus tells them that the Comforter, the Holy Spirit, is coming and he will teach you all things. So, so things are going to get clearer than they have been thus far. How's, how's that going to happen? Because, uh, or, or excuse me, and bring all things 
to your remembrance. So as I said, if you've got a red letter Bible and you're turning through John 14, 15, 16, and it's all, you know, red letters everywhere, and you're like, how on earth could John have remembered all that? That's how, right? That's how, right there, because Jesus told him. I'm going to make sure that you remember what I've told you, okay? And what does that do then? Verse 27, what's the, what's the upshot from that? Peace I leave with you. My peace I give unto you. Not as the world giveth do I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. So this peace that Jesus gives to his disciples, because he's told them he's leaving them soon, and that definitely would trouble them. And so he's now telling them that I'm going to send you the Holy Spirit, and he's going to bring with him this peace, my peace. And it's not a peace that avoids trouble, apparently, because Jesus is going to the cross, and he knows that they, in time, will be persecuted. The book of Acts has a lot of those accounts. And it says, not a peace as the world gives. So, not a worldly peace that gives you some kind of superpower to, to transcend your suffering as though it doesn't affect you or it doesn't hurt. So if, if your understanding of the peace that Jesus gives you is such that when affliction and trial and difficulty come, that if you're really spiritual enough, it won't really affect you or hurt, that's not Christianity. Okay? We've got a God who, who, who bleeds, a God with wounds. And so this peace is not as the world gives. D.A. Carson says, This peace is not to be confused with aloofness that is indifferent to injustice, corruption, idolatry, or some other sin. It is not simply feeling good in some sort of narcissistic way, nor is it some mystical sense of being so detached from physical and spiritual realities. Although much loved by Eastern religions and promoted by certain cults, such peace is both unrealistic and too fragile to compare with the robust versatility bound up with biblical peace. Okay? So then what sort of peace is this? The peace that Jesus gives has three aspects. The peace that the Holy Spirit brings. Three aspects I want to cover with you briefly. The first one is peace with God. Okay? Romans chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God. Through our Lord Jesus Christ. So the first, the, the first aspect of this peace is that for all who believe and thereby are justified by faith in Jesus, sins forgiven, you now have peace with God. And before, if nobody's told you, apart from that justifying faith, whereby you can hear, as was just given to you from Romans 5, in the assurance of pardon, your sins are forgiven. Right? Apart from that, word of promise and forgiveness from the Lord Jesus for those who have faith, you are still in your sins. And so this peace that Jesus gives is peace with God, but it's also peace with one another, such that the tribal distinctions that we would want to erect, be they ethnic or political or matters of taste or whatever else, are torn down. Ephesians chapter 2 verses 13 and 14 talk about this very thing. Paul talks about now in Christ Jesus, those who are far off are made nigh. That is brought near by the blood of Christ. I think I switched it to KJV in in Proclaim, and I I didn't know how to switch it back at this juncture. I apologize. Uh, I would love that. Thank you. Uh, For he is our peace 
who hath made both one and hath broken down the middle wall of partition between us. So just take that language in for a moment. He's broken down a wall that was real and that did exist. And now we, you and I can confess together with all who believe in Christ, regardless of earthly distinctions, that we're brothers and sisters. This unity has been, how can I put it, seen, visible, to a lesser and greater extent throughout history. Because there are always things that want to tear at our unity, right? I mean, right now, I think a big one is politics, right? Such that, which is why I was discussing this uh, uh, with, uh, with, with Brian the other day, Brian Elkins yesterday, that, that to the extent that we all know each other's political affiliation, it's, very, it's much easier to dismiss one another, Right? And so once I know kind of where you're politically affiliated, at least in our present moment, I feel I'm within rights to dismiss you once I figure out what team you're on. So so that would be an example of like a dividing wall, best I could tell, that Jesus is torn down and said, "You, you might disagree on this, but it is not, well, now that I know that about you, I can dismiss you and don't have to work as hard to love you. This is why some people... um. I mean, this, this peace, by the way, that Jesus promises and that Jesus gives is why some people refuse to be part of a church, a part of a, a body, and part, and, and part of Christianity is because that, like, having to be at peace with their neighbor would cost them too much. That's part, that's part of a, conceivably a reason. And so you have peace with God, you have peace with each other, Realized in varying and lesser, I mean, in greater and lesser degrees throughout history. And so we plead, Lord, have mercy on us. Third, you have peace within. Peace within. Philippians chapter 4, verses 6 and 7. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, but by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And there it is, the peace of God. Which surpasses all understanding, not as the world gives, yeah? Will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So here's, here's a promise that the peace of God, in a sense, reconciles you to yourself. I mean, I, I won't ask you to raise your hand, but if I said, how many in here have ever not understood themselves or feel yourself to be at odds with yourself, I think we can all acknowledge there are plenty of times in life when that's real. And this is the answer we're given as, as a new covenant, Jesus-worshipping, Christ-confessing people to our fear and anxiety. And let me say something about that real quick. Because in our moment, our present-day moment, when, when the wider culture, as far as the numbers on depression and anxiety go, as, as far as we can tell, higher than they've ever been. Okay? When, when young people are drowning in anxiety and fear, I am afraid there's a tendency to either dismiss them as snowflakes or send them to a therapist. Both of which I want to say, wait just a minute. <laughs> wait just a minute. Right? And I'm not saying that going to a therapist is sinful. Let me make that very clear. I'm simply thinking out loud as to whether or not that should be the immediate knee-jerk reaction we have to all depression and anxiety. The scandal is that we actually have an answer given to us by Jesus to all the fears and anxieties that would seize the human heart. 
in the moment that the answer is needed most, I think we ourselves have stopped believing it. Right? And to be clear on this, I was helped with this recently, that doesn't mean that if somebody says, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm troubled by fear or anxiety, and there, right, there's a difference between like being afraid or anxious and being, as it were, seized upon by like anxiety attacks. Those are two very different things. I think we can agree. And as, as I think through, you know, how, how can the church be most well-equipped to help people in the midst of suffering like that? At least the first step is to say that the answer is not, well, look, if you're afraid or if you're anxious, what you need to do is just go read your Bible and pray more. You're close, but you missed the mark. What you should have said is, if you're anxious and afraid, let's sit down and read the Bible together and pray together and walk through some of this anxiety and all of its roots that are consuming you. Right? Big difference between those two. The scandal, again, is that we who have an answer to fear and anxiety don't tell anyone. And that is, we, that is I'm saying, we, we're tempted instead to, to medicate it, whether that's with, with alcohol pills or addiction to a screen. When our greatest need is Jesus Christ, who comes to us and says, take my words and receive my peace. I don't give peace as the world gives peace. And so what do we do? To go to war with our fears and anxiety, we, we know His words. We, we hear them. We speak them. We speak them to each other. We sing them. And we believe Him when, when He says, be washed in my words, eat and drink my words, and my peace I leave with you. It's yours, Christian, not as the world gives. That's because the world gives peace mainly in two ways. By hanging your hope on a change in your circumstances... Okay? By hanging your hope on a change in your circumstances or just kind of by hopeful wishes. Like, well, I, ho- I hope it gets better for you. Sorry to hear about that. So like, what is on changing circumstances? You know, this will soon be all better. Uh, this will soon be okay. This won't last. <laughs> you will not surely die. Where have we heard that before? And Jesus on his way to death says, my peace I leave with you. Or the other one being hopeful wishes, right? Well, I just hope everything turns out okay for you. Again, Jesus does not give peace based on a hope that just everything's going to work out okay. He spills His blood so that we can confess all things must work together for our good. When Paul preaches that glorious truth, he's so overwhelmed in Romans chapter 8 that he says, if that kind of God is for me, finish it. Who can be against me? Yeah. Who can be against me? Cancer? Alzheimer's? Recessions? Political unrest? Tyranny? Death? Where is your sting? Where's your sting? If you hurt me, it's going to push me closer to my wounded Savior. If you kill me, then I really win. And so, people filled with the Holy Spirit talk about Jesus. That's what we do. That's most fundamentally what it means. You're filled with the Holy Spirit. You talk about Jesus. The greatest work of the Holy Spirit then is to give us what we need most. And what is that? The very words of Jesus. Right? He says, my peace I leave with you. Right after he says that you're going to be able to call to remembrance everything that I've said. That's the grounding of their hope. 
that Jesus is going to give them his words to steady them and to sustain them. And you know what you find out if you, I mean, if you read the book of Acts, Jesus made good on his promises. Because it's like this group of confused fishermen who barely know what's happening at any given moment. And they go from that to standing before their authorities and saying, no other name under heaven by which men can be saved. So they go from like very like grasping, trying to understand to we have his words. We have an understanding, not by our own strength, but by his Holy Spirit who he's poured out into our hearts. And so Jesus' own words then become the source of our peace. And what steadies us and holds us fast is that he's filled us with his Holy Spirit. Why? So that we don't forget his words. That is what we need most in the moments of our fear, our anxiety, the things that would consume us. And so, why are we here as post-Pentecost people? (laughs) Because we're going to keep speaking those words to each other again and again and again until He comes back or until I die or until you die. But we'll just keep going on and encouraging and stirring up this peace in one another by Jesus' own words. Now, as far as kind of how that works out in daily life in terms of the Holy Spirit leading, guiding, directing, all those things, that's going to be next Sunday. We'll talk about that as well. But I wanted to start with this foundation to tell you that the most exciting thing that Jesus has given us in sending us the Comforter, the Holy Spirit, how does the Spirit comfort us? By giving us the words of Jesus. That, that was the disciples' hope, right? He says, I'm leaving you, but the Spirit's going to come, the Comforter. How's He going to comfort? By giving, uh, by giving them His words. And praise God, they wrote it down. <laughs> Such that we can continue to confess these realities to each other against every fear and anxiety that would threaten us. And so we'll speak those words and keep on speaking them to each other until the very last day. In the name of Jesus, amen. Our Father, we lift up our thanks to you. And we rejoice that you have filled us with your Holy Spirit. And so as Spirit-filled people, give it to us too with great joy. Talk about and sing about Jesus to ourselves, to our friends and neighbors, to our families, to those who are hurting and anxious and afraid to all who are around us until the very last day. We need your grace for this. And so we ask for it now, that you would continue to cleanse our hearts and and our minds of sin, that we would continually be refreshed with your good and steadying words, words of salvation, words of life, and words of peace that you've left with us, not as the world gives. So we lift up our thanks to you once more. In Jesus' name, amen.